Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Ask Andrew. In this time like last, it gets to be Ask Andrew and Karen. Now, in the previous episode, we we talked a little bit about Dorothy Sayers' essay and why it was so successful, so effective, why it was so popular. And one of the things that that came out of that was the idea of... um, Oh, the ordering of things, the structure of a child's development, what you might call the curriculum. Well, today we're going to talk about two questions related to the curriculum. And the, and the, the first one is very simple. What is the classical curriculum? So I suppose I could, Karen, turn to you and say, what do you think? What is the classical curriculum? But that might not be fair to you. So I'll give you the opportunity. Would you like to answer you that? You go right ahead, and I'll okay. just jump in. Okay. You, 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 oh, boy. He's just going to jump in. Okay. So, so the first thing I want to say about the curriculum is mistakes that we make. And I can, I can point to Dorothy Sayers on this one, as well as to Mortimer Adler, to Jacques Barzun, to the medieval educators, Hugh of St. Victor. I can point to Quintilian. I can point to Aristotle. One of the biggest mistakes we make when we think of curriculum is that we think in terms of subjects. And thinking in terms of subjects is a very modern era, error, and I consider it to be, do I want to say it's the fatal error? I think it's a really, really big mistake. Thinking in terms, the, the curriculum is not the subjects you study. The second mistake we make is that we think it's the books that we read, or, or worse, that it's the textbooks that we read. The curriculum is neither the subjects we study, nor is it the textbooks we lead, read. The curriculum, well, I mean, one way to look at it is to say it comes from the old Latin word curriculum, and as I understand it, that means the running in a circle, but, but it has the idea of it's a horse racetrack. It's if you go to the hippodrome and you watch, you know, Ben-Hur or something, you watch the horses run around the track, they're running on the curriculum. The curriculum is the, 
I like to say that when you when you um, get the kids in the curriculum, you get them running in circles, and and um, the goal is to and and subject literally means to throw under. So what you want to do is get the kids running in circles so they can throw them under the bus. But that's not really it. That's not that's not what a curriculum is. The curriculum is the whole experience that a child has. And so one of the points that I'd like to make here is that you cannot dissociate the child's mind from his wider experience. One of the first things that makes up the curriculum for the child is the the physical atmosphere, the physical environment in which he's he's abiding, in which he's dwelling. And and basically put it this way, the space that a person occupies is what he will study whether you mean him to or not. He's going to look at the walls, the floor, the desks, if there are desks. He's going to look at the physical environment, and that's going to be a very quiet, most of the time, but a very constant statement to him of values and beliefs and commitments of the, of the institution or the home where he's studying. So we have to start when we think about the curriculum talking about the physical environment as something that he does learn from. Lockers in the hallway, what does that teach a child? Um, desks and rows and, and columns, what does that teach a child? Um, maybe a U-shape, what does that teach a child? Uh, do you want to add anything to that point there? That the experience, the physical environment is part of his curriculum. Just, just that the whole, the whole home is educating or not educating the child. And so everything that you do from the time they wake up in the morning until the bedtime story is part of their education. And ed- their education isn't just happening when they have their books in front of them at the table in the chair. And, and so we need to be careful of the culture that we're providing in the home, intentionally or not intentionally. I like that word culture. The, the uh, Greek word for that is paideia, and that's the exact same word that they use for education. In, in, in Greek thought, so far as I've been able to tell, they don't even have the ability to distinguish between culture and education. It's the same thing. And so when, you, when, when a Greek child wakes up in the morning, he gets up in a Greek bed, puts his feet on a Greek floor, walks across a Greek floor to a Greek door, walks through the Greek door into a Greek room where there's a Greek table with Greek food on it, prepared by a Greek mother and a Greek father, and they talk to each other in Greek. Maybe there's Greek bookshelves on the shelf um, or scrolls. Then he walks out onto a Greek street where he walks past Greek gods, Um, up the Panathenic Way to a Greek temple, into a Greek marketplace. All of these things come together to make that child, to form that child into being a Greek. It's the paideia of the Greeks. And the phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says to, to bring up your children, he says to fathers, don't provoke them to wrath, but bring them up on the nurture and the paideia of the Lord. And that's what we're trying to to discover and, and to develop in our curriculum is the paideia of the Lord. And that's not just books, and it's not just intellectual. It's going to be personal. Remember that we're teaching a temple, we're teaching an image, and we're teaching a person. And if we forget any of those, we won't teach them the way they need to be taught. So I really appreciate your point that it's, it's the whole home. It's all that you do from the beginning of the day to the end. 
So in other words, we don't even need to think about books, do we? We don't even need to think about the content. We just have to have a good, positive experience all day long, right? Well, that would be nice. You look hesitant. No, of course we have to think about the content. They're feeding on the content. And their skills are developed by while they engage with the content. It strikes me as you say that, that, that their skills, skills are huge. And then secondly... Um, what values, attitudes are formed, um, appreciations. They're going to come to appreciate some things and not appreciate others. And it would be nice if we were all autonomous beings who naturally appreciated the right things, but it isn't like that. So one of the, one of the things we need to ask ourselves then is why, why, given that the curriculum is not the books or textbooks and it's not subjects, why do we need books? Dorothy Sayers said in her essay, although we often succeed in teaching our pupils subjects, we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching them how to think. And then she says, modern education concentrates on teaching subjects. Listen to this. Leaving the method of thinking, arguing, and expressing one's conclusions to be picked up by the scholar as he goes along. Medieval education, she says, concentrated on it on first forging and learning to handle the tools of learning. I think that might be the most valuable sentence in the whole essay. Because I would I would even say it wasn't just medieval. Medieval education did that at its high point because it was reading Aristotle. And Aristotle begins with the organon, and then you can study his other subjects, if you want to call them subjects he would have called them sciences, and I'll come back to that. But if you remember earlier, I talked about the seven liberal arts. I think it was episode seven or around then, six, seven, something like that. I talked about the seven liberal arts, and I mentioned that Aristotle developed the organon. That's what Dorothy Sayers is going back to, the seven liberal arts. And they're called liberal arts, or I even prefer to call them now the liberating arts of truth, perception, and harmony, because they're arts, first of all, and an art is a way of doing something or making something, and they're liberating because they enable us to see truth, right? Now, the modern world does not believe in knowable truth. Not believing in knowable truth, it doesn't teach people how to discover knowable truth. And what I'm arguing is it doesn't teach people the seven liberal arts. It teaches them the wrong curriculum. And as much as we can, we have to live in our circumstances and, and, and be fruitful there. But as much as we can, I think we need to separate ourselves from a subject-oriented approach because that's, honestly, that's easy to be tyrannical with. Who decides on the subject? Whoever is in charge. And they can make any subject for, for credit whatever they want. But nature tells us, the human nature tells us, there are certain things we need to learn how to do to be effective. We need to learn how to use language well. We need to learn how to communicate well. We need to learn how to think well. If we can't do those things well, we can't do anything like we ought to be doing it. So therefore, the arts, the organon, as, as Aristotle called it, or the seven arts as they developed in the Middle Ages, those are the curriculum. And those are all preparatory. They are arts that prepare us to make something. And what they prepare us to make, quite frankly, most immediately, is knowledge which in Latin is scientia. So once you have mastered the seven liberal arts, the fulfillment of the curriculum in a classical tradition would be the, the sciences. And there are 
there are stages to the sciences. There's, there's the sciences that are pretty precise and clear, pretty measurable, and those are the physical sciences where you can apply math to movement, and that would be chemistry, biology, physics, and all the variations thereon. Then there's a kind of science that you need to know differently, that math doesn't work for. That's the moral sciences, the humane sciences. Those need to be studied learning a different set of skills, and they need to be studied in a different way. That's why literature is so important, for example. Then there are the, the let's call them the, and ethics, by the way, would be a, a humane science. Then come the philosophical sciences, which would be, that's the really hard stuff that you shouldn't study until you're in your 40s, but that's, that's, you know, causes of causes. And finally, finally, at the very pinnacle of the curriculum is theology, where we, where we think about God himself. But, but you have to see that all of this depends on our mastery of the seven liberal arts. And for the Christian, it then in turn depends as well on purity of heart. And so you can't, you can't um, separate the intellectual from the moral development. So, sorry to make you sit through all that, Karen. You've probably had to hear that a lot of times, but that's that's my understanding of the classical curriculum in the, call it the abstract, disconnected. It's about becoming human. Now, there's another question, though, and we've got about two minutes by w- in, during which we can answer this question that was sent to us. And it came as an email under the heading, Developing a Curriculum on African Civilization. Wonderful question. We have a daughter in Africa right now, so this is very meaningful to me. Um, she says, I would like to develop a classical curriculum. She, she lives in Kenya, I should say. I would like to develop a classical curriculum that delves into African civilization. Studying the Greeks and Romans and Hebrews, I believe, is foundational for us to appreciate our African culture and examine the beliefs, values, and morals that have undergirded this culture historically is imperative. I would like your thoughts on this. Well, me too. Um, well, let me rephrase that. I agree that it's imperative. Um, one of the things that, that drives me as I think through education, I mentioned this in the last session, that it's about being human, right? That's what classical education is about. But as humans, we have duties. And education cannot teach us how to be human without also teaching us how to fulfill our duties. So I, myself, live in Concord, North Carolina. In order to fulfill my duties as a human being here in Concord, I need to know the English language well. I need to know local customs. I need to know state governments, local government, United States government. That means I need to know American history because it's my duty. That means I need to know where our Constitution came from. And that drives me back through the Middle Ages, through the British tradition, all the way back to Rome, all the way back to Greece, all the way back to Jerusalem. I don't think you can be, I'll put it bluntly, I don't think you can be a good American citizen if you don't know American history, British history, Roman history, Greek history, and Hebrew history. At least if you don't know the ideas that that we got from them. Let me put it that way. That's why as Americans, we have to have, no matter who you are, you have to have an American education, classical education to be a good American. There, I've said it. The, um, The question then in Kenya, what about that? Does a Kenyan need to know American history? I would say no. I would say it would benefit them in some ways because it's interesting and our constitution is fascinating, but they do need to know Kenyan history, and that does involve the British Empire. And the British Empire was not pure evil. They need to recognize the, the, the good that was in it. They need to, to, to view it objectively. They need to learn 
the African heritage that is part of Kenyan history, much of which is passed on orally and I hope still preserved. I know, for example, in Uganda, where our daughter is, most of that ancient um, or that oral tradition has been lost to where they don't even trust stories anymore. I don't know Kenya very well, but I believe that a Kenyan needs to be able to fulfill the duties of citizenship in the Republic, or I think it's a Republic of Kenya. Now, as a human, I think they ought to study grammar, logic, and rhetoric as arts. And as participants in modern society, they would benefit enormously from knowing uh, Latin. It'd be great if they could also do Greek. Um, and I mean here the ancient Greek, Greek and Latin. I think they would benefit from that. But I, but I think you also have to weave in whatever it requires for them to fulfill their duties as Kenyans. That, to me, is the practical, immediate part of a classical education that can't be set aside. All right, you've been patiently enduring while I've gone on and on. Did you want to add anything, well, especially given yeah, that Katie's over there? I would add that one of the ways in which we judge a book's worthiness to put in front of our children, um, when it, from, through which we can develop their skills, whether it's reading, listening, narrating, writing, um, is, is whether truth, goodness, and beauty is expressed in the story. And so, so I can think of lots of American books um, for children in which those things are expressed. But somebody in Kenya wouldn't need to use those because there would be Kenyan fairy tales or, or Kenyan folk tales, which, through which um, truth, goodness, and beauty is expressed. And, and that would make wonderful, wonderful stories to be to be read, to be talked about, poems to be memorized. There's a lot of culture there that that would be wonderful to use. That's that's fantastically well put. And let me add something about talking with Katie, and then we we got to end with this. Kate, Katerina is our daughter in Uganda, and she was describing for me recently, uh, well, a, a number of times, how much better her African students tend to understand Homer because the customs and traditions of Homeric Greek civilization are much closer to, in some ways, the Ugandan um, customs and traditions, which I find really fascinating. And, and her students, possibly because she's such a great teacher, but her students have loved doing Homer with her. Um, I, she told us a story about standing on the wall while they acted out the Hector, Ulyss, or Hector Achilles battle, stuff like that. It's really fun. So we're out of time. I'm sorry. This this question of the, the, the cross-cultural is such a big deal to me because I'll just say I don't believe classical education will come anywhere near fulfilling its purpose if all it can educate, I'll overstate it, if all we can see it uh, serving well is suburban whites. Now, it already has gone beyond that. I don't mean that, you know, to as an insult to anybody, but if, but if, if it only applies to suburban white people so that, so that they can keep their alt-right culture going, I'm putting this in as nasty terms as I possibly can, then I want no possible, I want no part in it. But if it's human, then I want completely to be immersed in it because I believe that the human being is the image of God and that's what we're trying to cultivate. So I hope this is, I hope this has been a helpful answer to the question. I know these questions are so much deeper than my answers and, 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 and then the time is up. This one's gone really long. Please forgive me, but may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Thank you.
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 